let's begin here with prayer. Thank you for coming. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy. And we pray that as we study your word today, we might understand what we're being told, what you've done, who you are, and really give glory to you in all we say and do, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today, we are back in Acts chapter 16, and I know we covered verse 16 a little bit. I know we at least started on this slide, but I don't mind spending more time on it because this is so crucial to, I'm going to put a little bit of bass in that now. Um, this is so crucial to really Luke Acts as a whole and some of the um, themes that Luke develops. And it's also pertinent to our day because there's so much talk now about deliverance. I talked to someone who comes here who had gone to some deliverance meetings in the past and like I had, and it's pretty amazing what all is going on. And we need to get the categories right so that we understand why we are being told these things and what the significance is. So let me read Acts 16, 16 and 17 in the New American Standard Bible. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, I know we covered this, but I want to make sure we do it thoroughly and get everything back in context because we, um, it's been a couple of weeks since I, I, I taught this. Now, as I mentioned last time, this spirit in the Greek here is called a python spirit, okay? And we read some material. I believe uh, my daughter Jessica read some stuff the last time we were on this because she's been studying Latin and Greek and ancient literature as part of uh, being a homeschool mom and her own education. And this python idea is certainly a valid thing that was going on in their world. And not valid in what happened, but it actually was a historical reality. So Luke isn't making something up here. This isn't mythological. Anyone in their world at that time would have known exactly what a python spirit is. It had to do with the belly and the idea that something would speak forth oracles. And that was something that would gather a lot of attention and make people very uh, interested, okay, very interested. So let me um, talk about some of that. One of the th issues it is, how is it that this uh, slave girl with the python spirit was accurate in what she said as far as it went? These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, the reality is the demons know full well what's going on in their world of the spirits, okay? The masters of the demons, the higher up 
rulers and authorities are actually part, even though fallen, some of them are part of the divine council. Satan appeared before God in Job, okay? And in Zechariah, I'll talk about that in some of my sermons from Ephesians 6. And so they know very well what goes on in the world of the spirits. And when Jesus came on the scene of history, they knew who he, who he was and is. Remember the ones that said, are you here to torment us before the time? They know that their judgment is certain and they know that their judgment is future. But now they're free to go about doing their business as the gospel comes and delivers people from the, the, the authority of darkness. Let me cite James 2 and verse 19. James 2 and verse 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So James points out that the demons know very well who God is. There's no plan of salvation for demons. Just for humans that are afflicted by uh, Satan in his lives. There's a way out through the gospel. Now, if you turn, uh, my Bible is over here. If you open up those little snaps on the front, and in the second pouch, there's a Bible in there. I forgot to get it out. Thank you. Let's turn to Luke 8, 26. Now, you know very well, if you've been here for very long, that Luke Acts is a two-volume work by the same author. And you also probably realize that there are themes in Luke that are more fully developed in Acts. So when you see interaction with demons in Luke, with Christ and his apostles, is setting the stage for similar things that happen in Acts after the day of Pentecost. So we're going to look at Luke 8, 28. Luke 8, 28. I'll start reading in verse 26. And they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. By the way, that would be in Gentile territory. And when he got out on land, now, what had happened just before that? The disciples were sleeping while they were in a boat on Galilee, and they thought they were going to die. And um, Jesus calmed the water and so on. So we're in a section of Luke that's telling us that Jesus Christ has authority over everything they feared. That's what this is about. They feared the water. They didn't build their house on the water. Why? Because that would be like building your house right next to Satan. The sea and the water, as far as the Jews concerned, were evil. And if you died there, they had doubts about any hope. You couldn't have a proper burial. That's why in Revelation, to reassure Jewish people, it says the sea gives up the dead. 
So even as if a Christian were to die at sea, they don't lose their hope for the future. You know, in Revelation, one of the beasts comes out of the sea. So the sea was a terrifying place. Now, when I went to Israel and, and went on a ride on a boat across Galilee over to Capernaum, I thought, well, I fish on lakes bigger than this. It doesn't scare us because we got modern boats and we got life jackets and we, you know, it's no big deal. We take a small boat. I've been on Leech Lake with a small little boat in the middle of a big storm. I didn't, I wasn't too worried, but they were. And so the Jesus who calmed the sea was telling them that he has a power and authority over everything they could fear. And they didn't need to fear if they trusted in Jesus. Now they come over to Gentile territory, which is an unclean place, and they come to a demonized man, okay? So they sailed to the region of Gerizines after this miracle Jesus did, which is opposite Galilee. And when he got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. Okay, so now we have a demon-possessed Gentile. And for a long time, he had worn no clothes and did not stay in the house, but in the tombs. So now you have the sea, which was considered demonic, Gentile territory, which was considered demonic, a naked man, which was really bad, who lived in the tombs, which was really a bad place. I mean, it's getting about as bad as you're going to ever find. It's just piling up negatives. All right? So now he's, it's just bad, 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 bad. So the question is, as we're reading Luke Acts, wow, he calmed the sea. He walked on water. He has power. Now, what's going to happen here? Can Jesus deal with this one? It seems even worse. So he's around the tombs. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, you son of the most high God? So now, remember Luke Acts, two-volume work. Demon-possessed man of, Ger of the Gerizines in the tombs, naked, calls him the son of the most high. Here we have a woman with a python spirit in Acts saying servants of the Most High God. So in two cases, you have demonized persons identifying Jesus as the Son of the Most High. Now, in their world, let's go forward now to Acts and maybe I'll go back here again. In their world, that didn't identify them as necessarily servants of the true God, the creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because in their world, the most high would be Zeus or some other deity. So I didn't necessarily narrow it down correctly, but when, when she said they're proclaiming the way of salvation, that's true. And they were preaching Christ. So the demonized girl was correctly identifying what was going on. That's probably why Paul let it go on for a few days before he dealt with it. Just what happened. Now back in 
the preview back in Luke. Luke previews Acts. And he said, I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Look at uh, verse 29. For many times it seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains. By the way, chains come up in Acts. So you see chains in Luke. Think about what happens in Acts when we see chains. Pretty quickly, the apostles are going to be in chains. And God sends an earthquake, and the chains fall off. The mic. Hold on, I got to tune you up. Okay, go. So in Luke, we have the demon recognizing Jesus. Here in Acts, we have the demon-filled woman recognizing the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ in Paul. He, and he recognizes the, the, the apostles as being... See, one of the themes, that's a good question. Let me point out what's going on. Okay. What Luke is telling us is that what Jesus did and what the apostles did there, the, even the 70, the apostles are doing in Acts. And so his, his authority and power continues after he's ascent to heaven. Okay. It wasn't dependent on him being on the earth. Okay, so... Paul was like, uh, uh, see, I'm, I, I want to get to the point of where Paul was annoyed with the woman, even though she's speaking the truth. Right. So uh, uh, was it like supernatural discernment on Paul's part he, that he could recognize the, you follow? Yeah. yeah. Luke doesn't necessarily tell us some of these things. Yeah. So we're going to surmise a little bit. Uh, so let me do my surmising. The only thing authoritative is what Luke actually said, but we can uh, get some idea. What she was saying, so he's in Philippi, which is mostly Gentiles. He had gone out to a place of prayer by a river. That's where Lydia was converted. And, and there were some Jews at prayer but this is mostly a Gentile setting in Philippi. This woman was considered somebody significant by the, by the populace. That's why there's a riot when she's delivered, or at least a mob. I guess it's not really a riot. So she was drawing attention to Paul's message. And that was okay as far as he was concerned. All right? And so he just kept preaching Christ. And they would come and hear the gospel, even though the, here's a python spirit telling her, telling these things. But after he casts that out, what's interesting, let me give you a little preview. Once the spirit's gone, the focus of Luke goes away from the slave girl into the social situation of the people. Okay. And that's a shift. So I'm looking at the, ga the guy from the Gerasenes as a preview, but there's a little bit of difference. With the guy from the Gerasenes, 
the emphasis is on how bad his bondage was. And it's the worst possible bondage anybody could ever imagine. So I believe that man serves as showing the worst possible situation anybody could be in. He was naked, which was shameful. He was in, insane. He was living amongst the dead, which were unclean. The thing about the 2000 wasn't a mechanism for deliverance. It was for the readers to know how bad it was. And then the spirits speak through the guy and ask to go somewhere else besides into the abyss. Now we know that some of the angels are already locked up there, the ones from the time of Noah. And so they go into the swine. But what happens to the swine? They go down into the sea. And the sea is where they would figure the demons are anyhow. Naked, demonized, in the tombs, a Gentile, highly demonized, 2,000 demons, delivered, and demons go into pigs, unclean. They go into the sea, a wicked, horrible place you don't want to be. And the guy is delivered. Now, in Luke, the focus goes back to the delivered guy. In Acts, in this case, the focus goes on to the social reaction to what happened and the profit motive. But it's still, so we have a question, why doesn't Luke tell us what happened to the girl? She disappears from the narrative. We don't know. Maybe she was like the guy of the Gatherings. We don't know. But the point was, they were mad because they lost their chance to make money. So it's about money. But what we already know, because we're reading Luke Acts' two-volume work, is that there's no situation that can be bad enough that the power of God through the gospel won't deliver somebody. That's what we learn. The worst, worst, worst thing could ever be God could still deliver somebody. And Luke is a preview of Acts. Because in Luke, Jesus goes into Gentile territory and has authority over the most demonic situation they could even think of. They've never heard anything this bad. So it's pretty amazing. And as a preview for Acts, what happens to the man? I'm just going to tell the story because otherwise he'll spend the whole time in Luke. He wants to follow Jesus. So we, we see the delivered guy. And I think the reason Luke does that in Luke is to show that this was a real deliverance and this guy was totally transformed so that we know nobody we know is in such bad condition that God can't save them and deliver them. Furthermore, he wants to follow Jesus. So he's totally in his right mind. He's not like he was. He says, no, go tell your people about what God's done for you. He becomes a witness for Christ in Gentile territory. He becomes the first missionary. Wow, you think God can use him? He might be able to use you. I don't think anybody here has been through what he was. So, 
In this case, though, in Acts, the focus is more on the gospel penetrating Philippi and the reaction of the authorities and the people. Lydia, seller of purple, accommodates the gospel and is an important person in Philippi. The, the slave girls, the demon went out. That's all we know. No, she disappears from the narrative. It's just the way Luke is writing it. But we're learning about what was going on. Now, as we saw the last time we were on this, from some, and I'll quote something else here, this whole Python issue, very much uh, true to the world they lived in. So we have every reason to believe that Luke is who he claims to be, that he was a, uh, he was a physician who was a Christian, who became a Christian, very fluid in Acts, an unbelievably great writer who got the historical details accurately described in his two-volume work. The people, the places, and everything. The Bible's true. We know that much. Now, what about this python? Oh, before I go there, turn with me to Luke 4, 34 to 36. We want to do another preview after doing the guy from the Gerizines, Gentile territory. We have a previous one in Luke 434. Where the demons know who Jesus is. Luke 434. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm. Verse 36 says, And amazement came upon them, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For the authority and power he commands... For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they go out. So Luke is very clear that Jesus and his apostles have authority over spirits. And that through the gospel, people can be delivered from the domain of darkness, which is the domain of Satan, and transferred into the kingdom of God. And now they're directly under Christ. And they no longer are part of the authority of darkness. Furthermore, those who are removed from that have no business trafficking in the realm of the occult. That's forbidden. We're out. I want you to know something. I'll be really laying this out in Ephesians. Every Christian is under Christ, not Satan. Is that right? Every Christian, I tell this to, I send this out in emails and answer to questions almost every week, has direct access to the throne of grace. 
Hebrews 4.16. Every Christian can be like Paul, who when annoyed by a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, went directly to Christ. Remove this from me. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. So we have no business interacting with spirits for therapeutic purposes. Let, let me say that again. Because I'm telling you, if you believe that, you know more than 90% of the people out there that say they're in deliverance ministry. All right? This will save you sorrow and misery if you listen and you believe it. We don't interact with the spirits. We go directly to Christ. The only reason we would interact with the spirit would be if a confrontation happens in the course of gospel ministry. And I have seen that. And I'm not denying that may happen. I've seen it happen. I'm looking back at some of the things that happened in the 70s. And in some cases, there were people who really weren't saved, who were highly demonized. And one that I wrote about in an article I published some long time ago, looking back at it, everybody thought they were a Christian because they went to church. And I told a story about a woman who was highly demonized and I had taught a Bible lesson in the evening or a preach. And afterwards at the prayer time, this lady just went out of her mind, contorted, her fingers became like claws and she started screaming and she went rushing at me to claw out my eyes. And so she came running. Well, I was a young, I was like 25 years old. And I just stood there. I said, in the name of Jesus, stop. And she collapsed on the floor like she had hit an invisible wall. Okay, so I'm not, some people say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. When I, when I, no, I've been there. I've seen it. Don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. We, and then that was the end of that. And then we prayed for her. And then there was a lady who had come from out of town and was staying with us. The next morning she came in for prayer again and she was fine. She was in her right mind. And um, said a few things and we prayed and then she, um, one thing she said though, I think I had, it was a serious temptation for me to take seriously, which I didn't thankfully. She said, Satan's afraid of you. I said, no, 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 Satan doesn't care about me. It's about Jesus Christ. But I believe she was converted. We never, she went, that was it. That would be more in keeping with a mission encounter than therapy for Christians. The lie and the falsehood that has permeated many in the Christian church, including evangelicals that wouldn't consider themselves charismatic, is that 
deliverance is therapy for Christians. So if you have a problem in your life, it's probably caused by a demon. And you need a deliverance counselor to identify which demon it is to get it out so that you'll get over whatever problem is that was caused by the demon. And so it becomes therapeutic for Christians. That's a deception. I've been fighting that deception for 35 years after I got out of the ministry myself because I realized that's what the deception was. We were going to interact with demons rather than going to the throne of grace. And once some people quit interacting with the demons, the manifestations quit. Let me tell you something that I know. If you interact directly with demons, you get manifestations. The manifestations convince people that you're doing some good. And then it's self-perpetuating, yes. I was going to mention, it's interesting, I was, I was watched about, I'll just share why I'm sharing, I watched probably 50, maybe maybe more than that, testimonies of people coming out of the New Age satanic movement just this week, because I, I do that for in my spare time sometimes. But what I noticed was a lot of people, they'd have all these intrusive thoughts coming in, or depression, and and that would that would be the after they do all these demonic things, you know. Sometimes it'd be pornography. Sometimes it'd be you know they they were it, you know I'm just listening. They, they had all kinds of kind of horrible things they did, but it was interesting because the, the thoughts they get so bad or like the suicidal thoughts, the skim, it would just like it would hit them all of a sudden. They'd have all these different kind of things that would come into their mind or emotions, and then when they'd come to Christ, a lot of times it would leave, and a lot of times also then they'd have to also most of it would leave and they'd still struggle with the thoughts. But, you know, I think it is important to realize that the enemy does have an effect, you know, especially before Christ, you know, for sure on, on people. And uh, sometimes God uses the enemy, you know, just like depression as a chastisement. I, you know, I believe because a lot of times when you, you hear some of these testimonies, they're just, you know, they do something bad and then they get so depressed or they get so, they get okay. suicidal. Well, let, let me try to... Uh, give an answer to, to uh, what you're saying there. It's true that after coming to Christ, all Christians have temptations and problems, and sanctification is a process as well as a standing. We are holy. That's what a saint is, a holy one who's been made holy by the blood of Christ. Here's my, and I haven't yet covered the the details of the armor of God in my sermon. But here's what I was doing wrong in those days. I was assuming, and the teachers, the false teachers were using analogies from Israel going into the promised land to come up with details of their false teaching. So they would say, for example, you can't take the land all at once. You have to take a little ground at a time. Because when Israel was going, like in Joshua, and they said, so the land would be all these demons have territory in your life. And you have to go through years of deliverance to take away land from Satan. So they denied the once for all and used an allegorical version of Bible interpretation to suggest that the land of Canaan with the Canaanites and their false gods was the Christian life and that the process of taking the land was the process of defeating 
than the previous inhabitants who still had a big chunk of it. That's what was taught. To my shame, starting in 1973, 72, I believed that. And I tried to practice it. I got that doctrine from false teachers. Now I'll name the false teachers. Wasman Nee, he is a serious false teacher. I, would, I want to warn the flock. Wasman Nee taught many wicked, evil things in the name of God. Do not listen to Wasman Nee. You do at your own peril. Because he claimed to have revelations beyond scripture that were necessary for Christians to get delivered from Satan. I've written about that. I've done radio on it because I don't want anybody to go through what I did. Number two, there was a book called Pigs in the Parlor. Frank and Ida May Hammond, Pigs in the Parlor. They used the allegorical method of Bible interpretation to support their idea that Christians are demonized and they got to get the demons out a little at a time by allegorizing Joshua. Rather than literal Israel to fighting, fighting literal armies and peoples and being tempted whether they're going to trust Yahweh or Baal, those were all allegories of demons and Christians. Frank and Adam A. Hammond, Pigs in the Parlor. False teaching, false book, wicked doctrine puts people in bondage. Do not believe it. I did to my shame. Furthermore, people that seemed more educated taught this. Derek Prince was a source of the doctrine. Taught the same thing. In the so-called Fort Lauderdale Five, all bought into this, the group I was in did as well. The leader of our group taught these things. And we believed that you had to little by little get the demons out of people till they became free. What went away? Once for all. That's done. They don't even talk about it. I'm back. Once for all. They, that didn't understand. Now, to my shame, dear saints, I had the tools to discern this, and I didn't do it for five years. Why not? I had the tools for Bible college. They taught me the truth in Bible college. They taught me Greek. They told me to stay in the Bible. They told me not to listen to Watchman Nee. They told me the truth. I plugged my ears and I went for this other thing. Why? What caused me to do that? The manifestations. They are so real. I'm not denying the reality of the manifestations. I'm denying the validity of the doctrine. And I allowed feelings and experiences to trump true doctrine that I'd been taught. I even misinterpreted that event. The most profound one was that lady went screaming after me and landed on the floor. I misinterpreted that. I thought it was a process of deliverance for a Christian when in fact it was a conversion. And it took me a few decades to figure that out. I'm a very slow learner. 
Okay. Looking back, I thought, you know what? She never had any more problems. She was converted. Let me tell you this. Believe what is being taught in the Bible. When you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean you don't have problems. Doesn't mean you don't have temptations. Doesn't mean you don't have bad thoughts. Doesn't mean you don't have any fears or any of the things that people go through. It means that you now you have direct access to the throne of God and a means of grace. And you let God deliver you through his means, which is the word of God, the Lord's Supper, fellowship of, around the word of God, and baptism, the things that God's ordained, whereby we're changed. The biggest thing is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You don't directly interact with the spirits. Because when you do, you're inviting manifestations. And when they show up, they convince you you need more of them. Ignore the spirits, go to God. Now, somebody may not want to believe me, but I gave you a chance to not go through what I did. All right, yes. <clears throat> I just want to take this opportunity. Uh, my friend Bob, there is not a lot of people nor pastors in this world today that would uh, say the things that you're saying about their past and uh, present it to us like you do here as well as out on social media and so on and so forth and admit your deception in the past and are now letting us know how we can avoid that. Most people would never bring that up. Well, and we I should all be very it. blessed that what Bob's telling us today, there's just not a lot of people that would step up and do that. Well, I assume God allowed, allowed it. I'm responsible, but he did allow it. But it was so I could help others. I want to tell you something else I did as well. When I found, I didn't know what to do, by the way, when I got out. That whole group kind of fell apart. And I got out, and we had people to take care of. And so we decided just to be a Bible church. I didn't know what else to do. And then it became clear that was the right thing to do. I contacted my teachers. I contacted Reverend Phillips and Reverend Snow and Reverend Smith. This was in the 80s and uh, when you had to use letters and telephones. And I got a hold of those teachers and I said to every one of them, you told me the truth. I didn't listen to you. I had five years of some really sad things and I misled people, but you told me the truth. I apologize that I didn't listen to you and I thank God for you that you told me the truth. I said that to those three teachers that I could still contact, that were still alive. Reverend Snow, Reverend Phillips, who taught me Greek, and most of all, Reverend Smith, who was, he really did, went out of his way to help me when I needed it the most. Very brilliant man, he knew Hebrew, knew the Greek, 
And they were Pentecostals, but see, their movement had been burned by this stuff, and they had fled to the scripture. So God bless them. So thank you. I, well, I met you not that long after I got out of all that stuff. Thank you. So we, we kind of... Timing's everything. Yeah. Um, we, uh, but see, this doesn't diminish the... In fact, it enhances the power of this message. What we're learning is that there's nobody too much in bondage that God can't deliver them. Let me give you an example as long as we're talking about this. The guy from the Gerizines, naked in the tombs and full of demons, 2,000 of them. Remember when Jesus said to him, what is your name? And it was talking to the spirits, legion for we are many. They went out into the pigs. Here's the false deliverance teaching. That was like one of their prime, prime proof texts. It still is for people like Bob Larson and these false teachers out there. That was proof that you had to know the name of the demon to get the demon to go out. So there was a whole industry created of preachers talking to demons, asking what their names are. And then they actually believe the demons. But see, we're not Jesus. We're not even apostles. Luke told, told us about legion not to tell us a technique of occultic deliverance, but to show the power of God. That the worst case you ever can imagine None of us probably have seen a naked guy in a cemetery with 2,000 demons. <laughs> Thank God, I, I should only want that idea in my mind, you know. Really bad. We haven't seen that. But the point of it wasn't to teach a technique. The pagans knew the techniques. The seven sons of Sceva are mentioned in Acts to show us it's not a technique, it's a relationship. It's not a spiritual technology that the demons are stuck obeying. Do you think you can believe what demons say when they talk through people? No, they're a liar. Satan's a liar. His message is always the same. Lie, lie, lie. Um, so you can't go by that. So I'm sharing all this because I want to get a concise uh, definition of this. I'll be doing the same in the ending of Ephesians in the armor of God. I'm going to prove from Scripture, and Scripture alone, that the armor of God is about standing in the gospel. Every piece of armor is something that's directly applicable to the gospel of Christ and our relationship with him. The only offensive piece, if you want to go into a wrestling match or a battle, armor is not a good idea because you can't. Have you ever seen armor? Can you imagine running a 100-yard dash and that stuff? No, you couldn't even move. So that's why it says stand, stand, stand. Histomy in the Greek, stand. The sword is the one thing you have, but what's defined? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. There is our offensive weapon, but what does that do? Does that make the demons worse off by us slashing at some demon? No. It's the way we plunder Satan's kingdom. 
I'm giving you a preview for the ending of Ephesians. When the word of God goes forth and one soul believes the gospel, they are according to Acts 26, 18 and Colossians 1, 13, 14, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. They go from the lie, John 8, 44, to the truth. The lie is Satan's lie. You shall be like God. You can sin and not die. You can have secret knowledge. It's all a package deal. The truth is Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's it. You don't go into the realm of the spirits and try to fix it. Now, Luke was historically accurate. That, why am I telling you that? Because there's people that have tried to deny it. It's so well documented now that even the liberals gave up denying it. They shifted their tactic. The liberals used to say, the Bible's full of myths. Nobody believes in miracles. These things can't happen. Walking on water and all this. No, who would believe that? That was the liberalism of my youth. Now liberalism has a new message. The spirits in the spirit world are all real. What we need to do is embrace all of the religions and all come into oneness. And so now they uh, affirm spiritual reality. They don't even bother debating historicity of the Bible because they say all religions are valid whether they're historically accurate or not because they're just pathways to God. So the new liberalism is no longer rationalistic and materialistic. The new liberalism is very spiritual and it has a very powerful message. You shall be like God. Meditate, do the work, get into your altered state. If you haven't seen it, you wanna see that series we did with Amy Russell about from Kundalini to Christ very accurately explains the new religion. Biblical Christianity is unique, but it is historically accurate. This python, let me quote Dr. Schnabel, the term python, puthon, refers to an enormous female dragon or snake called python, which Apollo killed near Delphi. The town and the god were given the nickname Pytho. According to Schnabel, Apollo then brought Cretans to be his priests in the sanctuary which he established at the foot of the mountain at Delphi in which Pythia, a prophetic seer of the oracle of Apollo Pythias, was sought out by the Greek cities. The Greek term Python uh, came to designate a spirit of divination. So thus, some of our English translations, a spirit of divination. It was also used of ventriloquists who were believed to have such a spirit dwelling in their belly. The syntax of the Greek expression can be read in two ways. The slave girl had a spirit named Python, or she had a Pythonic spirit, a spirit that produced oracles. The latter, says Schnabel, certainly what has been happening, the spirit was giving oracles. 
She foretold the future or used her abilities to afford clients how to protect themselves from misfortune or how to harm their enemies. The psychic gifts that attracted people who paid for her services and that consequently brought great profit for her owners. Oh, that was her gifts. They want to know the future and they'd pay for that knowledge. We're starting a series right now on CIC podcast and YouTube about false prophets who are predicting the future or claim they do. Now that this, uh, between the pandemic and the election, they're working overtime. They're churning out stuff claiming they predicted all this, which of course they didn't in any particular detail, but they all want to gain status by any bad thing that happens. And so Jessica and I are doing a series where we're bringing this stuff out and refuting it and pointing people back to what we can know, which is Bible prophecy. Now, I decided that there's something I'm not going to do. Please hold me to this. I'm not going to predict the future. Um, and I can't claim any great virtue. I'll tell you why. I never did say, thus saith the Lord, here's the future. But I'd say, well, I think so-and-so is going to win the election. Or I think the stocks are going to go up or down. Or I think America is going to get worse or better. Or I think, I'm not going to do that anymore. You know why? I don't like being wrong. <laughs> it really bugs me to being wrong. I don't know if that's a fault or a virtue. It depends how you use it. It makes me study a lot because I don't want to preach something and then be found wrong. I've already done that. I've had enough of it. I'm not going to predict the future. Guess what? I don't know the future other than the rapture is going to happen at some unknown time. And then the things in the Bible will all happen. Is America going to get worse or better between now and then? I don't know. <laughs> I think worse is sort of the default, but we don't know. About the time I thought things would get worse, sometimes it got better. About the time I thought it would get better, then it got worse. I don't know. I'd rather not know than have a spirit of python telling what's going to happen. That's what this lady had, and she was delivered. We don't know. She disappears from the narrative. It doesn't mean that we're not curious. We just don't know. It's not like the guy from the Gerizines who went to testify. We don't know what happens with her. Why? Because the narrative of Luke is focused on scenes that are helping him portray the message he's bringing forth. And the issue that is at hand here is civil authorities interacting with the apostles preaching. That's going to dominate the rest of Acts. And it's where it's heading in the ship uh, heading to Rome. Paul's imprisonment, testifying before leaders. That theme is being brought out here. We'll have more interaction with the spirits as we go along. Now, it's ironic that she was right, um, but they were proclaiming the true way of salvation, and they were certainly preaching Christ in the gospel, but the most high God could have applied to Zeus, but you couldn't say Zeus had the way of salvation. 
The content of Paul's preaching is the true gospel. Luke 16, 18, she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. It came out at that very moment. Now, Luke is telling us that Paul did this not as therapeutic process because he was but to make the, the thing stop talking. He had enough of it. It's not portrayed as therapy. He finally decided it was a worse situation, even though it may have drawn attention to the gospel, it wasn't worth it, so she, it was cast out. The word annoyed could be translated provoked or irked. It's only used here and in Acts 4, 2 in the New Testament. Here's the other time, Acts 4, 1 and 2. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So provoked was used of the Jewish leaders being provoked because they didn't like the gospel and here Paul being provoked because he didn't need a spirit of python helping the gospel any. So that's the two times it's used in the New Testament. Luke never tells us if she was converted, but focuses on the reaction of her owner and the local authorities. That's where this is going. We'll have plenty more material about people being converted, but here he's going to focus on that. And there is a reason why we shouldn't focus on demons and authority over demons other than in the gospel context. Turn with me as I got five minutes to Luke 10, 17 through 20. Luke 10, 17 through 20. And all this will certainly raise some more questions. That's what we're here to do, to talk about the Bible and help each other understand it. Remember Luke Acts, two-volume work. So what was in Luke pertinent to what's in Acts? Got it? Luke 10, 17. And the 70, remember he sent out the 70 and they had authority over demons and diseases in order to testify, of course, of Christ, Messianic salvation. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Stop right there. We've got to remember what we read when we get to Acts. What do we find out about the demons being subjected to people? It's potentially a lucrative thing. To be able to have the demons doing your bidding or being subject, the owner of the slave girl was getting a lot of money from a demon. The seven sons of Sceva wanted to make a great name of themselves by casting out demons like Paul did. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? They beat him up. So there's a danger in assuming the deliverance is a thing to enhance our status. 
Let me say that again. Because there's people doing that in our day in the name of Christ, enhancing their status in the eyes of others by their authority over demon, or at least their claimed authority. The 70 return rejoicing, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, interesting response. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now, Luke, citing Jesus, is telling us something about God's priorities. The priority is being delivered from the domain of Satan and thus from Satan's ultimate doom in the pit and be transferred into the kingdom of God where your names are recorded on the Lamb's book of life and you are eternally saved from where Satan and the false, the, the, the Antichrist and the false beast and ultimately Satan are put into the lake of fire. So don't rejoice. Why, why would it be a danger to rejoice in the wrong thing? Because you can try to make money or enhance your status by the manipulation of demons. The point of the deliverance was that the gospel was true and you can be delivered out of Satan's kingdom. Not that the people doing it had some great power. Because that's a danger. Now why did Jesus say, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning? Here is what the false deliverance teachers will tell you. If we cast out demons, that's how we cast Satan out of heaven. So they say, Jesus is watching them throw Satan out of heaven. So if we keep rebuking the devil and telling the spirits over cities to be bound and binding Satan and doing all of this, we're throwing Satan out of heaven. That's what the false teachers say. But what is Luke telling us? Because Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a reason he's warning them not to rejoice. If that process was getting Satan silenced and no longer the accuser of the brethren or whatever, I guess that would be a good thing. But no, the danger is the very pride that led to the fall of Satan. We know from many other scriptures that Satan is still the accuser of the brethren and he's still there doing it day and night. It's still going on at the end of Revelation until he's finally cast down. Is that right? So the disciples weren't getting him out of there. So why was Jesus saying, I was watching? This is a proleptic statement. I've told you about prolepsis. So is Eric. What is it? It's a present statement about a future event that's certain. You could watch the Vikings go to whatever, what are they? 
Oh, they won one, though. I, can't, I don't want to be too down on them. And they won two. So you could say, well, the Vikings are two and whatever they are, and there's a lot of good teams. And so somebody said, the Vikings aren't going to win the Super Bowl this year. There goes the Super Bowl. Well, it's a proleptic statement. We know they, it's already as good as done. They're not going to win the Super Bowl. Didn't I just say I wasn't going to predict the future? Yes, you did. <laughs> don't mention Yankees. Well, you know what? If I, if I was wrong about that, you'd all be happy. Yeah. We're in Minnesota here. Uh, no, the point is this. We say the game is over in the third quarter. They're behind by 40. That's a proleptic statement. This is a certain one because Jesus sees what will actually happen. That's a future event. Dr. Joel Green, commentary on Luke. The decisive fall of Satan is anticipated in the future, but is already becoming manifest through the mission of Jesus and by extension through the ministry of the envoys. Why? Because they're being delivered from the false accusations of the accuser through the blood of Jesus, and their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. One more. Uh, real quick, at the end of... Uh uh, Luke 10 there, right after what you were uh, quoting, uh, when Jesus, when they're praying to the Holy Spirit, you, uh, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Right. And then when you get down to jump to uh, 22, all, all things have been handed over to me by the Father and no one... Uh, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills right. to reveal. So it's about the gospel and coming to Christ, not about deliverance technology. I hope I've made a contribution here. If this saves you from some of the sorrow I went through, and I put my family through by believing these things for those five years, it was well worth it. It wasn't all bad. I had Christian fellowship. Some people did come to Christ. I did keep studying the Bible, and I knew what to come back to. But don't go into this world of the spirits and manifestations. You don't want to be there. It's a joy to just go right to the throne of grace. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your kindness and goodness. Help us understand everything you've said. And Help us to be focused on what we know to be true, which, which is the person and work of your Son that brings salvation, forgiveness of sin, deliverance from the power of Satan. Thank you, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And God bless you. We'll see you upstairs.